Hello there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Today's guest is George Ricci, an organist who really needs no introduction, but I'm going to say a few words about him anyway. He's mostly known in the organ world because of his... Uh, famous Bach recordings. He recorded all the organ compositions of Bach on historically important instruments of the United States. And uh, most recently he uh, uh, recorded uh, Art of Fugue uh, CD uh, together with the documentary about this project uh, DVD. So this was done with Fugue State Films. And also we cannot uh, forget this uh, wonderful resource that he made together with George Stauffer. It's called Organ Technique, uh, Modern and Early, a method book basically for, for an organist who is uh, who wants to develop a broad and comprehensive approach to organ playing, both modern and early techniques, legato and articulated style, as well of, as splendid uh, historical uh, historical introductions about these techniques, various national schools of organ playing in historical periods, as well as a uh, few other things such as hymn playing and even avant-garde modern organ techniques. So he is a real expert on all areas um, of of uh, of organ playing, as you will hear in this conversation, and really inspiring man, who who is basically. Uh, Curiosity led to his lifelong pursuit of um, musical perfection. Enjoy this conversation, and if you have any thoughts, uh, please don't hesitate to share with uh, with George and me in the comments. Uh, we would really appreciate. So, I hope this conversation will be inspiring to you. Let's go to the show. Uh, I want to start, uh, George, uh, this conversation with uh, trying to remember how we first met, right? Um, remember, uh, we were, um, basically, we came to the University of Nebraska uh, uh, Lincoln campus, um, and you were the, f- the first person who basically introduced us to the to the to this campus. And uh, by us, I mean me and Osha, we were at the time uh, trying to get in to study uh, at UNL for the doctoral program. You remember that, right? Oh, I remember that very well. Uh, it was a great pleasure to meet you and Osher and to show you around. So I'm so glad, uh, George, that you uh, agreed to have this conversation today with us, and I'm so grateful to you. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. You are such a great inspiration for not only for me and Osha, but for the entire organ world. We will talk about that in a minute, of course. And uh, um, remember how we first met. You you showed this wonderful organ uh, that uh, was what at the time was at uh, UNL's uh, cornerstone chapel basically uh, that Gene Bidian built Opus 8 remember that instrument yes it has uh, now a new home right Uh, uh, at Thomas the Aquinas uh, 
um, Roman Catholic uh, center and um, uh, luckily for us uh, you were the first person to introduce uh, this um, wonderful spectacular historically conceived instrument so uh, from this experience from this moment this was a beautiful day I remember uh, early spring I guess um, you were the the most uh, the most uh, basically ambassador of UNL uh, remember the first person we met at in Lincoln basically and we with OSHA thought that's the place to go because of, of your experience with us and you shared lots of stories about UNL and about this organ we thought yes we want to study there so thank you so much for being such a wonderful inspiration again well I'm flattered that you say that it, it was a mutual feeling because we and I say we meaning Quentin Faulkner and of course and Gene Vediant uh, felt very fortunate to have you and Osher as students at Nebraska it was a wonderful moment when we knew you were going to be coming and uh, we had a great uh, experience with you there yeah and uh, uh, let me ask you a little bit George uh, uh, because uh, uh, many uh, organists are now uh, uh, listening to us uh, or not uh, not now but uh, later will when this uh, recording will go li live will be uh, listening across the globe and of course they were very very interested in you and your your uh, Bach expertise and uh, and uh, Art of Fugue recording and DVD um, can you tell me a little bit uh, for starters how you first fell in love with the organ? Um, it's a complicated story in a way, but I'll try to make it uh, a little simpler. Uh, I began piano, of course, as so many do, when I was uh, six years old, and then at the age of 12 began organ lessons. And um, I enjoyed the organ, definitely, and the piano. Uh, I was interested in a lot of other things at the same time so I like so many children was playing sports uh, baseball and basketball and uh, track and field and and was uh, in school interested in student government and uh, in my courses and so I kept piano and organ going but they didn't become I would say central to my life until I was in college Although, I, I should say, all that time I couldn't um, stay away from Bach's inventions and symphonias and organ works. And I, at the University of Redlands in Southern California, began with a major in psychology, but I took a lot of music courses, including organ and piano. and. Um, I can still remember the first large organ work that I, Bach organ work that I memorized was the Passacaglia. And after I had uh, memorized it, I can still remember the moment in the practice room uh, most of the way through. I can even remember the measure number uh, most of the way through playing it when I just realized that that's what I would have to spend my life doing. It, the music was so powerful, and I was so 
felt so fulfilled uh, playing it that um, I changed my major then uh, actually by this time it was a master music degree that I decided to get in Oregon at the University of Redlands and uh, I uh, so I, I in a way it was at that point when I really began to be completely interested I, I should say that I had an uncle who was an engineer and psychologist and worked on the designing the cabin for the astronauts for the first moonshot. And when he heard I was majoring, going to major in music, he wrote to me and said, uh, you know, music is fine, but you really ought to think about staying in the sciences where uh, you could, as he put it, you could use your full personality. And so I wrote back and I said, the sciences are fine. It's one way to get at truth, uh, whatever that might be, uh, but I thought the arts were too, and I said what I can say from my own experience is that when I'm playing Bach on the organ, that forces me to bring everything that I can bring, 100%, uh, physically and emotionally and intellectually, uh, and I just cannot imagine anything more rewarding than that and so that's what I have to emphasize uh, in, in what I do and uh, I think he understood after that. I guess uh, many people listening to this uh, uh, would uh, pr basically uh, agree with you 100% that Bach with his tremendous spiritual influence and the depth on in his um, musical works especially in organ works have such a profound um, has a, such a profound uh, effect on on any individual who is uh, willing to open his mind or her mind uh, for this tremendous of course artistic experience can you uh, so so of course um, many of, of my listeners of course, uh, uh, play Bach and enjoy playing Bach, but 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 of course, um, very v Bach has this enormous uh, um, feeling that uh, that it's it's such a like an ocean, right? His music, the, his output is such an such a depth that you only uh, by playing this Pasacale, as you say, uh, one piece, you only grasp just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, can you, can we say uh, basically everything else is else is such a broad mystery? By basically, so I'm so some so glad that the first experience you had with organ was. Bach. <laughs> it, it definitely is, uh, you feel, bottomless. There's always more to learn about it. And uh, I think that basically you realize that uh, the more you study this, is true. you realize this, that you're dealing with one of the greatest minds the human race has ever produced. And you have the chance to be intimately connected with the output of that mind and so it's a continual source of inspiration for you because there's always more to learn from what he did exactly uh, i was counting uh, 
uh, uh, once uh, my teachers and of course uh, I was kind of aware that we all as organists keep conti continue this uh, organ tradition um, centuries long tradition seven centuries long of course and uh, it literally is possible to trace back our lineage as organists to, to Bach right or even the, uh, even older times to Buxtehude and Sveling, right? So I think uh, we uh, we calculated uh, that you were the the tenth uh, tenth generation uh, student of Bach, and I was eleventh generation because of that. <laughs> oh, that that's great we, to calculate. We, we, we calculated and found very very uh, rewarding <laughs> and pleasing. Thanks. So, um, so uh, of course, this uh, interest in in Bach was your first organ experience, and what else uh, after that happened? Uh, uh, did you go first to France or to Germany after after your studies in the U.S.? I had a German government grant uh, to go to Germany to study uh, for a year with uh, the blind organist and Bach expert Helmut Walsha. In Frankfurt, yeah. and that was uh, what, whatever doubts I might have had about how I wanted to spend my life. Uh, that solidified my thoughts because it, it was an amazing experience to study with him. He was so incredibly articulate and knowledgeable about the music. He had thought about it so much. And he had learned it basically, if you think about it, inside out. In other words, being blind, uh, when he learned a specific Bach work, he would have somebody sit at the keyboard and take a few measures and first play the soprano, and he would memorize that, and then the alto, and then the tenor, and then the bass, and he would memorize each of those melodies individually, and then sit down and put them together himself. And so in a sense, as this is what I mean by learning the music from the inside out. The entire polyphonic tapestry then is laid out for you. You see it as a conductor does, uh, in a, a choral conductor or instrumental conductor, each melody separately and then combined. And so he would have, for example, uh, me and other students in a chorale prelude, he might say, don't play the chorale on the, in the soprano, if it's, that's where it is. Uh, play just the alto and the bass and the pedals, and don't play the tenor, but sing it. So you would be needing to play two melodies, alto and bass, while you sang the tenor. And it was that ability to understand and be able to know intimately each separate melody and then how they're combined, and also to experience the music vocally, which he was very adamant about. But he had thought about the structure of the music, about how the melodies related to each other. He had thought about 
how, if it were as it was a girl prelude, how the music related to the text. And he himself never stopped learning. It was clear that he was continuing to learn. And so this was a huge inspiration for me. I mean, over the years, I changed many of my pro, uh, aspects of my approach in terms of performance practice. But I, I n- never forgot that drive to keep learning about the music and to learn as uh, as much about it as you possibly could well that's that's amazing and uh, it reminds me uh, the the story how how Helmut Walha um, learned or memorized music right the story reminds me of another story uh, you told us while at UNL uh, about Mozart's experience with uh, with Bach's work when he, Bach was already uh, dead, um, uh, Mozart was traveling, right? And uh, he uh, stayed a little bit uh, in Leipzig, and he went to this church, uh, Saint Thomas Church. And um, remember, he, he heard this uh, this w- magnificent vocal music. Uh, polyphonically beautiful music and he ran upstairs right and um, and uh, can you tell us later what happened I believe it was the first Bach motet and uh, the account is something to the effect that uh, when they began uh, the choir began to sing uh, Mozart picked up his ears and uh, made the remark, now that's music one can learn something from, and then insisted that they bring all the parts to him, and he sat on the floor with the parts around him, studying the music, studying the score, and apparently it was quite an overwhelming experience for him. And one of the intriguing things about that to me is the thought of when one genius meets the work of another genius. Exactly. uh, that that genius being Mozart then knows that he has to somehow deal with what he's hearing. And so as time went on, he worked very hard uh, with Bach's music as models to be able to write his own polyphonic music. And uh, there were various attempts, that, uh, some not as successful as, other, as others, but eventually he incorporated it and it became uh, part of his style and so for example when you hear the final movement from the Jupiter Symphony uh, it's the exact in a sense uh, his um, total ability to integrate uh, what he learned from Bach into his own style yeah and of course uh, uh, Mozart uh, learned uh, part by part, right? This motet, or studied part by part, because uh, the 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 cantor didn't have the uh, the entire score laid out, right? So this reminds me of of how Helmut Walha also learned inside out, right? That you mentioned in your in in the previous uh, previous episode. So it's it's such a deep uh, way of learning. I feel that that you probably also incorporated uh, some of his ideas in your practice. Uh, can you oh, relate to that? 
very definitely, because um, you learn so much about the music when you're learning it in individual melodies like that. And uh, I, I, I'll never forget the last lesson that I had with Helmut Walship. Um, I had not had a chance to learn the 9-8 prelude, uh, BWV 547, and so I said I had 15 minutes left in the lesson, and I said, could you just talk to me about your ideas about that piece? And so he sat down at the organ and took the first four measures and said, all of the ideas of the piece are in the, the first four measures. And so the opening measure with the scale, he labeled singing, zingen, yeah, and yeah. second measure with a kind of trumpet fanfare, spielen, or playing, and then the third measure with Groups of sixteenth notes, da 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 dum, da 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 dum, da 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 dum. He, he labeled laughing or lachen, and then the fourth measure, da dum bum bee dum bum pa dum bum bum, tanzen or dancing like a jig, and he, he could have labeled them A B C D, but he, at any rate, it was singing, playing, laughing, and dancing. But then he began and. Remember, this was unrehearsed. He didn't know what I was going to ask him to do. So he, he was sitting down, and he played the entire prelude, beginning to end, calling out whatever ideas were being combined at the time, singing and, or singing and, and laughing, playing and dancing, and, and so on. And I was just stunned uh, because it was a flawless performance, and it, it showed how intimately he knew the music. And so that was a matter of lifelong inspiration for me. And I can tell you, for me too, because I remember um, at UNL I spent most of the time studying with Quentin Faulkner, but uh -huh. uh, but uh, during the last semester I uh, uh, kind of switched and uh, uh, learned with you too, uh, organ performance, and one of the pieces was the exact uh, C major prelude that you you are mentioning now, and you also suggested that I could uh, also take this prelude and fugue apart and learn the Valha way basically um, by memory. So I did, and I was very very fascinated with this really deep deep way of learning that I uh, really recommend uh, even today to, to my students all over the world. Yes, it's it's a wonderful way to learn, and I'm still doing it today in my own work with Bach harpsichord music for my own pleasure. Uh, often it, it may be just an hour a day, but I'm working on a specific piece and memorizing section by section that way. Because it, for one thing, it allows me to think about the music when I'm away from the keyboard, too. I I can discover things when I'm walking on a hiking trail, thinking through a given minuet or allemande or courant, and and I th think, oh, look at what he just did in the alto part there. I didn't even notice that before. Uh, so it, it's a wonderful um, tool for uh, thinking about the music as well. You have this physical experience of walking or or even jogging or just uh, simply doing some really manual task, uh, engaging physically with, with some object, then your mind is kind of free to wander and uh, uh, to think about your creative creative world and, uh, uh, and your, uh, your kind of uh, also 
uh, how to say uh, basically uh, you can come back to your creative uh, problems that you're facing right with Bach or other uh, other things uh, while doing uh, these these physical activities right exactly uh, I just have to be careful not to do that when I'm driving <laughs> wife says, well, what are you thinking about there and I have, have to uh, come back to focusing a hundred percent on the road but uh, yes it, it's it's something that uh, becomes a part of you, the music itself, uh, when you've learned it thoroughly like that. Yeah, um, that happens for, to me too. I sometimes, for example, um, walk uh, uh, past my house and didn't know, d d don't notice that this is my house, and I kind of walk <laughs> past it a couple of hundred uh, meters or feet, uh, basically, <laughs> and <laughs> right. just because I was so deep into my ideas in my head so I has this this happens this daydreaming uh, some people call it um, this happens a lot and it it, it really is not such a bad uh, thing uh, as some people might think you know you miss the house or oh you you drive and <laughs> didn't notice so, of course uh, w when you drive you have to be really focused but when you do some less dangerous activity your your mind is free and uh, basically you um, again uh, your inspiration can can work uh, your imagination can work uh, in a much much more profound way this this time and um, or like when we are in the shower the greatest ideas right come in the shower <laughs> we just have to keep a notebook next to the shower and uh, of course to uh, notate or write down these brilliant ideas when we when we first encounter them yes it's definitely true that a lot of ones uh, an artist's um, main ideas come uh, away from actually say for us being on the organ bench they come away from them uh, at other places and uh, in unexpected uh, places sometimes but uh, it's also wonderful as a teacher because when you're working with someone else, also you gain insights. You learn from the experience. You learn from your pupils sometimes. Exactly. Uh, yeah, and uh, when you, um, I remember you told us that uh, after after Germany, after studying with Helmut Walcha, you went to France, right, uh, to study with Isuar. Uh, who who encouraged or inspired you to to go to France also? Well, in 1976, I went to the National Convention of the American Guild of Organists in Boston, and I had heard about two people who were going to be giving uh, classes there and lectures and demonstrations. Uh, one was Harold Fogel who had a huge impact on me from that moment. Uh, and the other was uh, André Isoir from France. And so as far as Isoir uh, goes, then that was 1976. And in 1982, I had a sabbatical semester away from the university. And I had been studying in Germany and I, with Walsha and I, before, and I knew how much I had learned just being in the 
German culture, and so I thought I was sure that, as opposed to just listening to Isouar's recordings, that I would learn so much from being also in the French culture. And so this is exactly what happened, and uh, I spent three months working with him, and uh, they were wonderful. Um, for one thing, he typically, when I played a piece for him, a, say a, a piece by Couperin or Clairambo or De Grigny, I would have listened to his recording of that piece, and I would have tried to fashion my interpretation to some extent uh, after what I heard him do on the recording. But then he would sit down and play it a second way, and then he would play it a third way. And the wonderful thing to me about that was that he wasn't saying about any given way or any given approach, this is the way to do it. But he was saying, these are options. And I began to realize that the most important thing as a learner is not to know or to be told how to do something, what the correct way is, but rather to be told what the options are. And this it gave me a great sense of, of freedom with that music I might not have had otherwise, and he approached it in a very improvisatory way, which also appealed to me because I had played jazz piano quite a bit in college. And um, so I... Um, felt that that experience uh, with him was important, but also being in the French culture, I had had uh, what I later felt to be a misunderstanding, and that was that German music may be more, quote, profound than French music, because it so much tends to be so much more polyphonic, and uh, etc. But what I discovered in France, I thought, was tremendously important to me, which is that for the French culture, uh, style is often substance. Uh, in other words, the way the food is uh, looks on the plate is as important as the way it tastes. The uh, w way you say something is as important as what you say. Uh, the, for example, in music, it, there's no accident that the French overture style in the Baroque period took over Europe because it it was a kind of style that was just wonderful uh, in uh, establishing certain moods and so on. And um, so this gave me a, a very different insight into French music, a, a very sympathetic one, I felt. And in, in addition, I would say that uh, that doesn't mean that the French composers don't didn't compose polyphonic music because certainly they did and, and De Grigny is a prime example of that. So it's very profound music even in that sense but the style itself became to me uh, very more, much more important than it had been. Uh, that's exactly right and uh, this uh, different experience uh, from the German way of playing, right? This uh, quite strict and uh, uh, of course, uh, I don't know if Helmut Walcher had these options uh, like Isuar did, but uh, but uh, perhaps uh, this improvis improvisatory manner is such a such a great way of um, approaching music in general, right? That when you transfer uh, some knowledge or experience to the student and say you must play this way and this is the only way. 
then you kind of limit the students uh, uh, basically world and uh, I think we as educators shouldn't do that and you uh, George were tremendously tremendously to basically tolerant he had uh, this tremendous tolerance towards uh, uh, my and Oshra's uh, creative um, adventures and experience at UNL basically um, you I remember that you didn't push any of your ideas on us but you just said you might want to try like experiment right like with with this uh, Valha memorization method you just if you want you can try but in, if you want you can uh, basically write in fingering and pedaling right but it was not uh, just uh, like a strict rule so I'm kind of uh, um, conscious that you probably were influenced by this um, tolerance and freedom from the French masters as well probably uh, to some extent, that's true, and of course, for also from the jazz playing I had done, which of course emphasizes an improvisatory approach to things. But it, it's true, I think, the most important thing in a lot of ways a teacher can do for a student is to encourage that student's creativity. And if you try to put things too much into a box, that this is the way you have to do this or you have to do that, that can in fact stifle the creativity rather than stimulate it. And so offering a, a suggestions, for example, if a student wants to know how do I do this ornament uh, in a Baroque piece, well, the better way to think about it is uh, what are the options for doing this ornament? Because obviously there can be, uh, often there can be several options. Uh, so presenting those and letting the student go from there uh, can be a much more productive way for the student than to give them one way that you think is correct. Exactly. So I'm so glad that uh, you, you, you were this, um, uh, basically a teacher who had this many options approach and uh, and of course it 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 uh, transfers to us also when we teach also we try not to to push one uh, one um, idea although this idea might be legitimate and uh, good but we understand that students are different and they have their own probably approaches and um, stories so then we let them decide probably that's the best way isn't it right right I, I remember maybe 10 or 15 years after I had studied with Helmut Valsha I uh, ran into another former student of Valsha's and he said have you departed from Valsha's teachings and I said um, well in certain ways that I certainly have because no two people are alike but I said to me what I learned most from him is that he was continually learning himself and so he himself 10 years later or 15 years later would be in some respects quite different than he was when I studied with him and so it's I learned that it's important for me to continue to try to grow as a musician as well because everything we learn as we live our lives uh, is potential source of inspiration for us and we we need to react just as Mozart did to Bach uh, rather than feeling like we need to protect our, our own way of doing things 
That's exactly right. Now, uh, George, tell me, uh, what was, uh, what came first, your love for Bach's music or your interest in modern music? Uh, well, I would say that I was interested all along in the wide spectrum of organ music, including modern music. Um, I, I would say that I found a kind of visceral connection of Bach my my attraction to Bach, as well as my attraction to jazz, and I realized later, I think, that uh, that has something to do with their connections with the dance. Uh, jazz music, of course, comes from Africa, the, the source of it, and it was intimately connected with dance in Africa. Bach's music is intimately connected with the dances of his own time, and um, so that intrigued me a great deal and um, yet I, I would say that as time went on I became interested in the entire organ literature and uh, certainly right on up through avant-garde uh, pieces and I taught and performed uh, some of those as well yeah, and um, uh, when comparing these classical organ uh, pieces like Bach and uh, and uh, some of the other early masters to modern, even avant-garde organ music, can you uh, don't you think that uh, the the objective of the modern art has changed somewhat from from Baroque period? Oh, there are definitely changes. Um... And yet, there are many connections in certain ways as well. I mean, this is these changes happen from any style to another um, as time goes on. Um, but at the same time, there are certain things that uh, continue. And one connection between avant-garde, a lot of avant-garde music and a lot of Baroque music is uh, the interest in making a dramatic impact on the listener. Uh, it's through different means, but it's still with that same intent. And, and so that's what intrigued me in some respects, most of all about some of the uh, avant-garde music. In my case, um, mostly 20th century avant-garde music that I play, a late 20th century. Yeah, and, and sometimes this late, late modern music can be perceived by the listener um, as, um, well, let's say, Noise, right? Uh, um, this n simple noise is imagine a piece by, I don't know, um, for example, even sometimes um, uh, John Cage, right? Or um, sometimes uh, Dan Locklear, or uh, even even uh, Messian, sometimes in the, his uh, latest works, uh, might be very very dissonant right and this dissonance um, sometimes is perceived uh, uh, by the listener who is not experienced uh, uh, this kind of music before as uh, as sort of uh, uh, and 
basically music without a purpose right without some some uh, intent but I don't think this is uh, the case in many in many ways because uh, uh, composers really put many things into into these uh, modern uh, and avant-garde compositions but can you elaborate a little bit how uh, the real uh, 21st century listener can can uh, experience and and open his or her mind to the modern music a little bit well, in answering that, I would um, mention to people a book by Slonimsky called uh, The Lexicon of Musical Invective. And what he does in that book is to take first reviews of pieces that now are staples of the repertoire, say a, Brahm, a Brahms symphony, and the reviewers, these are professional listeners, and they at first said, this is terrible music, this is mathematics of the brain, this is uh, just purely uh, noise, basically. And it was only after they broke through that unfamiliarity and became more familiar with it that they began to see the problem was theirs, not Brahms. And so that continues on with avant-garde music. And when I taught analytical listening to uh, my students at the university, typically I would play a piece for them that they had never heard, maybe at a avant-garde piece or maybe an earlier one, and ask them to write down features of it that they heard. And then I'd play it a second time, and they'd do it again, and then a third, and then we'd talk about it. And then I would ask them, um, as you listen to it the third time, were you hearing it differently than the first? And it Invariably, they would say they were, and often, if I asked, do you find that you maybe like it now, as opposed to the first time, and often that happened. They would dislike it the first time, and they liked it by the time they heard it the third. So I would always preach to my students that one should never close the door to a piece of music in terms of not wanting to deal with it or hear it again after the first listening that you should keep that door open until you became more familiar with the sounds because avant-garde music or any music before, um, it, it, you often need to become familiar with it before you can be a judge, before you can really feel like um, you can know whether you like it or not. Exactly. This openness, uh, this basically sense of curiosity, right, uh, should... Uh I, do, I shouldn't say should, but uh, it's best if if this uh, sense of curiosity would uh, follow us wherever we go, right? To some extent, uh, we, we should be continuously curious, right? Exactly. Our first question shouldn't be, do I like this or don't I like it? That's the most damaging thing we can do to ourselves because it's much better to say, what is this person or composer uh, trying to do? Uh, what are what, what's going on here? This sense of curiosity, as you mentioned it, and um, later can come the question of do, do I like it or not? Because some things you will, some things you won't. But it's a much more honest question to ask yourself after you've been curious for a while as to what's happening with that music. Well, exactly, and um, and. Um this uh, I know you recorded some some uh, modern and avant-garde music uh, compositions, right? Um, what composers did you did you play uh, in that uh, CD recording? 
Uh, yes, I, I made a recording of uh, music, avant-garde music of that time, late 20th century, uh, for organ and percussion. I had first at a national convention heard a performance by William Albright of William Balcom's piece, Black Host, for organ and percussion. And I was just really uh, struck by how wonderful a piece it was. And so I got together with our percussionist at the University of Nebraska, Albert Rameto, and um, we started working on the piece, and we enjoyed uh, the or combination of organ and percussion so much that uh, so I, I got together with our percussionist, Al Romito, and after working on Black Host, we approached a percussion composer, not, not percussion, a composer on the faculty at UNL at that time, Robert Bedell, and asked him to write a piece for us uh, for organ and percussion. And he did, and um, the name of that was Arcotor, A-R-C-O-T-O-R. But we had so much with that that we branched out and eventually uh, William Albright a piece called Enigma Syncopations and um, then Dan Locklear's Constellations uh, which um, is a fabulous uh, 30 minute basically piece or well 20 minute I guess piece for organ and percussion and uh, so we made a recording and then we played concerts away from uh, UNL, including the final concert at the International Congress of Organists in Montreal. Um, and um, this uh, was a, became for us a, a different kind of experience, and uh, we found that organ and percussion uh, can fit together beautifully. Oh yeah, the organ and percussion. I remember, I remember very well one piece uh, Oshara played uh, by by the Czech composer Peter Eben, L landscapes of Patmos, also for organ and per percussion, and this this was beautifully uh, beautifully written, and of course uh, sound sounded really well on organ with with a colleague. Um, percussionist so uh, and your interest in modern music of course uh, uh, transferred to these famous Nebraska organ conf conferences right uh, because they are well were not all dedicated to the music of Bach obviously but to all kinds of uh, uh, basically aspects aspects of organ music or organ world so one of them Obviously, it should have been and um, modern music and avant-garde music, right? Yes, um, we had a conference with Garrett Zacher and William Albright on um, avant-garde music at that time. Uh, we, um, well, I should say in a larger sense, uh, much of what I did in my professional career, I felt, was at the uh, intersection of the practical and the scholarly, in other words, uh, or, and to put it another way, is the um, more theoretical or philosophical, the intellectual versus the actual doing of something. Uh, but one thing is to figure out how to do something technically and physically and so on. Another is to ask yourself the question of why you're doing that. So in these conferences that Quentin Faulkner and I put together, 
Uh, we did 24 of them over period from 1977 to 2005 on all sorts of topics and with any specific topic we would try to put together two or three uh, experts who uh, would lecture and then if they were performers they would perform and then we'd have a panel discussion where ideas were discussed uh, so we were dealing with these both scholarly intellectual questions and then practical questions. And uh, so th this was also behind the Oregon Technique book that George Stauffer and I wrote, uh, Oregon Technique Modern and Early, where we tried to include as much information as we thought an organist should know about the instruments and the styles of, of uh, playing the music, um, as well as just... Uh, systematic approach to learning early technique and a systematic approach to uh, learning modern technique. So an organist has to be ideally uh, very intellectually curious about all sorts of things and that's uh, something that of course we as organists um, find is one of the most wonderful things about being an organist because there's so much to learn over seven centuries as you mentioned. Exactly, and um, and of course uh, this, um, uh, so to say, uh, intellectual ability to uh, to uh, decipher the musical compositions of all sorts, right, of early masters and uh, later masters, even up to the 21st century, is so tremendously important for any organist who is uh, striving to perfect, basically, his or her art. So, so can you tell me a little bit uh, what's what is the first uh, thing you do when you encounter a new organ composition? How you you approach it? How you analyze it? Uh, in the first place, of course, uh, it's important to experience the sounds and uh, enough so that you break through that barrier of the unfamiliar, so that it becomes more familiar to you, and then you become more. Uh, aware of what's um, uh, what the intentions of the composer are, why things are done in certain ways. Uh, one thing I would mention here too is if there is any chance to contact the composer to, to ask questions, that is should always be taken. I remember David Craighead, the great organist and pedagogue at the Eastman School of Music used to say one of the most valuable things for him in learning a new piece was the composer's phone number <laughs> because every time I had a chance to talk with the composer about his work and I talked with Albright, I talked with the Balcom, I talked with Bedell, I talked with all these people, you realize it, that even in the 20th and 21st centuries when we put more, composers put more into the musical scores about what they intend than composers in earlier centuries did, there are still so many things that they cannot notate that are between the lines that are uh, important as to how they conceive of a piece and how they would like it performed. And uh, so I always learn things from the chances to talk with composers. So th that's why it's very good if you can... Uh, do play pieces for one thing of composers that, that you do have a chance to communicate with. 
That's right. Uh, um, if for a master like you, uh, who was um, basically um, experienced Bach, Bach uh, Johann Sebastian Bach's tremendous uh, depth of, uh, of uh, knowledge and inspiration in his organ works, for for a person like you uh, who studied his works, obviously uh, this inner th thought uh, of playing all Bach's work. Uh, was also very very important right and you of course are known to the entire organ work for recording all Bach's uh, organ compositions right on CDs on imp historically important uh, instruments uh, of, of the United States so can you tell us a little bit uh, about this recording project that you did uh, with Bach pieces well I began about around uh, 1995, I guess, on that project, and my idea was to record the organ works on American organs of the 20th and uh, 21st centuries uh, that were historically informed, in other words, organs that these uh, builders created based on knowledge of historical styles, particularly in my case, uh, North and Central German styles. And uh, the, these are some of the most wonderful organs in the world, for sure. And so what I wanted to do was to try to showcase uh, those organs. And uh, so I put all of the registrations in the recording so people would know exactly what stops were being used. And um, I tried to fit the specific Bach organ works that I was recording on a, a, a given CD uh, with uh, one or two organs that would be particularly appropriate for that music. And so um, that was basically uh, what was behind it, uh, as well as the fact that I, at that point in my career, because I, it was about a 10-year project to do the complete works for me, um, and when I even when I began, I had by that time developed my own approach. Uh, I continued to learn, of course, but in certain fundamental ways, I knew exactly uh, what I wanted to achieve with that music. So I felt I could be fairly consistent over that time period in the way I approached the music. And of course, these instruments are so fabulous in uh, historically uh, important ways. Um, can you um, can you ba basically remember uh, one or a few important instruments that you still are fascinated by today uh, from that period, from that uh, recording project? Oh, it's um, you know they all were wonderful uh, and. Uh, I should say that I, I did an earlier recording uh, before the Bach project on four of Gene Bedient's organs, and they are all fabulous. In his case, different styles from North German to French Romantic, to French Classic to Italian. Um, but um, it's it's hard to single out any uh, one because the the builders included, uh, you know, from Paul Fritz uh, to Ralph Richards and Bruce Fox and uh, Taylor and Booty and Nowak and um, uh, uh, I don't want to leave any 
one out here, but um, builders... Uh, Martin Pazzi, right? Martin Pazzi, I have to mention certainly because he was... Uh, his organ was maybe... And Charles Fisk, I should say, but Charles, Martin Pazzi in St. Cecilia's in Omaha is a wonderful organ and one in which one can play in two temperaments, a mean tone temperament and a more well-tempered uh, system. And so he gives some wonderful options uh, there, too. But uh, at any rate, uh, it was a wonderful experience to be able to play uh, these organs from n different builders. John Brumbaugh was another. Uh, and um, the, each one has its own personality, and uh, yet yeah, fits the, the music extremely well. Exactly. Well, you you mentioned uh, Gene Bidian's four instruments, and uh, in my previous podcast uh, with with Gene, uh, we talked about his influence uh, influences uh, as as an organ builder, and of course um, he wanted to make sure that I include uh, some of them uh, in this talk because uh, let me let me just read what he wrote after our conversation. So, um, regarding people who had a big influence on, on Gene and his work, uh, one number one, George and Quentin, basically George Gitche and Quentin Faulkner were amazing colleagues, and I was so fortunate to have spent a career working closely with them. We discussed organs, organ building, organ sound, and organ playing continuously for our entire careers together. As, as as you well know, they are totally insightful, open, and always good with good opinions. So that's Gene's uh, uh, words. And of course, oh. uh, number two is the UNL organ conferences, uh, which George and Quentin initiated within a short time of their arrival at UNL, were also a big influence. Uh, they brought ideas, information, and personalities by experts who were at the top of our professional, and the three of us benefited in big ways, not to mention those who attended. So the concept of the organ conference was picked up and emulated by many of their colleagues in subsequent years, of course. So, and number three, it was thanks to you, George, uh, that getting uh, uh, your Brombo house organ that Gene first met George Taylor and Hermann Gronke, two of his partners, and later John Brombo and John Bui. So Brombo uh, went to Ohio in 1973 to meet Brombo and observe his uh, uh, shop operation. Gene went uh, to, to the shop of Brombo, basically. And uh, he writes that after a nearly all-night discussion during that visit, uh, he really enabled uh, Gene to change the scope of the cornerstone organ from something that would probably have been quite neo-baroque and ugly in appearance to the amazing organ it is. So I had never been to Europe at the time we designed and built that organ. So that's a citation, very long citation, of the email I received uh, from Gene Bediant, and I just wanted to uh, let you know how he appreciates your work and uh, influence on him. That I very much, of course, appreciate what Gene said there. I definitely, too, want to add that uh, I was incredibly fortunate to be at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln with Gene and with Quentin Faulkner. Uh, the things we were able to do together would have been uh, certainly on my 
account uh, for me. Uh, impossible to do individually because I feel like I learned so much from both Gene and Quentin. And that um, organ, uh, the Cornerstone Organ, Opus 8, uh, I spent uh, untold hours on that organ getting ready for these Bach recordings, and I learned so much from that organ itself. I can't imagine uh, having not had that available to me. And uh, with Quentin, uh, we worked together in a way that uh, was always stimulating to me. And uh, with the typical organ conference, we would brainstorm and come up with ideas that would have been very difficult to come up with uh, separately. So I think that the collaboration was incredibly important, uh, certainly for me and I hope for all three of us. That's right. That's right. So after this um, uh, Bach recording, uh, probably came your uh, your last project, right? Uh, the most important uh, uh, thing you did in in the later years is uh, the Art of Fugue project. So can you tell us a little bit uh, how it was conceived and uh, and uh, what you learned from it? When I studied with Helmut Balshu, uh, all of us went to Munich to hear him play the Art of Fugue uh, in uh, Munich, and we were so overwhelmed. And um, I actually had an extension of my uh, German government grant for a second year to study the Art of Fugue with him. But for various reasons, uh, I decided to come back to the U.S. then. Uh, however, I, throughout my career, looked forward to getting back to it, um, and finally then was able to and able to record it, um, basically because, you know, I feel like this is at the pinnacle, the art of fugue. Uh, it's one of the greatest achievements of the human mind. It combines... Uh, in the intellectual and the emotional in a perfect blend, uh, some of the most complicated pieces ever written, but they sound beautiful and are attractive to the ear. Um, and so it's incredible music to be able to deal with and um, to listen to and, and to perform. And it brings the art of combining melodies of polyphony to its highest level. And um, so I wanted to do this, I found um, uh, I could do it with a, a Fugue State Films in England and, and uh, the new organ by Richards and Falks at Pinnacle Presbyterian Church in Scottsdale, Arizona uh, was available, an organ that was uh, is based on Central German organs of Bach's time and so uh, works beautifully for music that he wrote in this latter part of his life. And uh, then I also felt I had the advantage of the work of Christoph Wolf, who I had uh, been a student of uh, at Harvard for a seminar, a summer seminar, and who is, I feel, the leading Bach scholar. And um, so he had done a lot of important uh, scholarly work on the art of you, which I made use of. But uh, I, in making the recording, too, we included a DVD, uh, which has a uh, 
documentary film about the Art of Fugue using comments from Christoph Wolf and comments from the organ builders. And then I have some comments about uh, my feelings and my background leading up to it. And then another documentary film where I talk about each of the counterpoints, each of the specific pieces in the Art of Fugue, how they're put together and uh, various aspects of them. So again, it's a way to uh, allow uh, a listener to both hear the music and to uh, think about it in terms of these historical background and the structure of the music itself. Uh, that's exactly right, and uh, and uh, since Bach was uh, and is such a big influence on you, uh, as an organist, you cannot ignore his harpsichord works, uh, isn't it? So I know that your current interest is in his harpsichord composition. So can you tell us a little bit uh, what are you playing and uh, practicing right now? Well, you know, I've retired from playing concerts and, uh, of course, from teaching. And so for my own pleasure, each day uh, I spend time with uh, the harpsichord works. I've uh, memorized and uh, internalized, I would say, the inventions and symphonias and the French suites and all but two of the English suites. And I have hoped to go on to the Well-Tempered Next, uh, the two volumes of the Well-Tempered Clavier, uh, then the three, uh, the first three parts of the Clavier Urbum Part Three, and so on. It, this is just for me uh, the most intellectually and artistically satisfying thing I can be doing. We as keyboard players have the opportunity, which most other players don't have. Of being able to reproduce the entire texture of a given Bach piece. Uh, of course, there's the unaccompanied violin uh, sonatas and partitas and the unaccompanied cello suites and so on. But for the most part, other performers of Bach need other musicians. And so we're fortunate that we can um, play the entire texture ourselves and sit and at the keyboard and work on it. And so I that's that's a highlight of every day for me is to do that. Well, I'm so fortunate that you uh, that you uh, were my teacher and Oshra's teacher for for a time at our study at UNL, and you left such a deep impact on our lives, uh, not only uh, musical lives but also in general, uh, in general lives. So you've been such a great inspiration, not only for us but through us to the entire. Uh, organ world, uh, basically, uh, my students also, uh, because uh, they frequently uh, bring up the the issue, not issue, but the topic of organ technique, your book, method book, uh, I really recommend uh, people uh, this, uh, this um, method book, which is very, very comprehensive and lots, has lots of practical, but also scholarly information for, for 21st century organists that, that is is a, a must, I think. So thank you so much, George, for for your work that you, you you do and you continue to do, and you you are such a great inspiration. And uh, I hope to, to to have another conversation with you uh, f in in the future uh, concerning your other new interest that your new continuous curiosity will inspire. Uh, for the for the uh, f uh, finishing our conversation. 
can you tell our listeners how they can connect with you online? Uh, I have a website at georgeritchie.com. George Ritchie is one word, so G-E-O-R-G-E-R-I-T-C-H-I-E.com. Uh, there they can see how to order various things, recordings, uh, and uh, the book and reviews and uh, information. And I've written a statement about my approach to Bach there. So that would be the uh, best way to find out more information about what I've been doing. Excellent. So thank you so much one more time, George. And uh, we'll keep in touch. Thank you, Vitas. This was a great pleasure for me. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog, Secrets of Organ Playing, at organduo.lt, where you will find lots of insights, practical advice, and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vidas Pinkavitus. Thanks for listening. And I'll catch you online really soon.